Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 49. Uh, This week, it's just myself, Michael, and Gladys. Sarah and Mark are taking uh, some time off for spring break. We also have a guest this week. We have Jason Zan, who's here to talk to us about Risk IQ. But before we get to Jason, uh, let's take a little lap around the news. Uh, Gladys, why don't you kick things off? Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, risk detections before I mention my news related to this topic. As you may be aware, Azure AD Identity Protection identifies uh, suspicious actions related to user accounts. Risk can be detected at the user or sign-in level and can happen at real time or at offline. For example, leaked credentials may be found in the, in the dark web and compare against the Azure AD user current credentials. If they are found to match, the account is marked risky, and which then triggers a set of, of remediation activity. Well, Microsoft Defender for Cloud Apps, formerly MCAS, has added two new detections uh, in the identity protection area. And and this uh, shows the cross-collaboration that uh, we have between services. The first detection uh, is called mass access to sensitive files, which uh, profiles your environment and triggers alerts when users access multiple files from Microsoft SharePoint, uh, Microsoft OneDrive. For example, uh, an alert is triggered only if the number of access file is uncommon for the user and files uh, which may contain sensitive information. This may be helpful, um, especially when uh, having ransomware attacks or or an attacker trying to exfiltrate uh, data out of the environment. The other detection is unusual additions uh, of credential to auth app which detects suspicious uh, service principle activity. Again, uh, this is uh, trying to detect whether an attacker or a malicious uh, attempt has been done to change a a service principle and run uh, behind an application uh, without being noticed. The next set of news that I want to talk about is sensitive labels. For those that are not familiar with this, sensitive labels is a way to tag information and allow customers to require different configuration depending on the tagging provided to a file. For example, the customer may decide that the file must be encrypted and only internal employees can access it, or maybe they may uh, select a way for external users to access it, but it must be stored in a particular location. Well, before sensitive labels was incorporated within Office 365 or Microsoft 365, it was a separate service called Azure Information Protection. Because Microsoft has deprecated Azure Information Protection and no new customers can get it, there's new guidance about how to and why would you want to use the sensitive labels that are part of the Microsoft Information Protection strategy over the Azure Information Protection. Also, there are new settings for auto-labeling policies. And if you're not familiar with auto-labeling, basically, this is a functionality that can auto-mark 
a file depending on content found, uh, such as profanity, whether it finds the word resume or health-related information or others in a file. So a few things took my interest uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, the first is that Azure private links are now supported in Azure API management. Now, some of you may say, well, hang on, didn't API management already have that? Well, the answer is kind of yes. Um, it was only the developer and the premium tiers. Well, now it's available in developer basic standard and premium. This is fantastic because it allows you to essentially have API management just listening on a, on a private network. Uh, the next one is Azure Monitor Agent now supports private links, and that is now generally available. So we talked about this a few weeks ago um, on the podcast, but that feature is now uh, generally available. So now you can have front ends to Azure Monitor running on a private private network, so that way that data isn't exposed. I mean, in theory, that kind of data shouldn't be exposed anyway because it you know could be aggregate. But you know, some people like to make make sure that that sort of data isn't you know is, is kept on a private network. Uh, the third one isn't really news at all. Um, it's really it's the consequence of some events that happened over the last few weeks. Um, I've been working with a customer uh, over the last few weeks on secure score. In other words, how to take uh, you know, the current environment and their current secure score, look at the recommendations, come up with a plan for uh, essentially remediating some of those recommendations uh, so the secure score can go up. Now, I've said this a few times, but I'll say it again. I'm not a fan of just like raising secure score just for the sake of raising secure score. Uh, I think you know you've really got to focus on the actual things you're really mitigating, and you know are they worth it? You know a lot of them are worth it. Don't get me wrong, but you know some security mitigations sort of carry a much heavier weight than other ones. So you know are you mitigating the right things? Now with that said, uh, one thing we found is that overnight. Their uh, their secure score dropped. Now, don't get me wrong; it's, it's expected as you as you're making changes and you're you know you're moving you know, new resources in, and perhaps you don't have as your policies in place to deny certain settings and so on. You know, the secure score is going to go up and down. That's that's just perfectly natural. I mean, the trend over time should be upward, but you know, don't get too caught up in the day to day pendulum swings. Well, one day it dropped a lot. And the reason was because some items that were in preview, some checks that were in preview, became generally available, and we hadn't mitigated those, and so uh, the, the score, secure score, took a hit. So the next question was, well, how do we know, you know, which when these things that are in in preview, these checks that are in preview, when are they going to be available? Because that way we can sort of you know work out you know which things we need to work on as soon as possible. So I emailed Yuri uh, Diogenes, and Yuri sent me a link back. Uh, of basically the calendar for upcoming upcoming recommendations and when they will go GA. So I will provide a link for that in the show notes. Uh, I think that's a critically important resource. It's not just you know what things are changing; it's also uh, what things are coming up. So uh, make sure you make sure you take a look at that. All right. So now that we've got the news out of the way, uh, let's turn our attention to our guest this week. We have Jason Zan, who's here to talk to us about Risk IQ. Uh, Jason, hey, thank you so much for joining us this week. We'd like to take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity here today. Um, so my name is Jason Zan. I came into the Microsoft family via Risk IQ, which was an acquisition that was made by Microsoft probably, uh, I want to say it was August of 2021. So it's been about six months now that we've been on board. We've had a partnership with Microsoft on a, uh, a number of different levels over the past several years. Um, and this just seems to be like a natural step that's uh, kind of moving forward here. Uh, Risk IQ, for those of you that, uh, that may not know, uh, we've developed a technology probably about 10 years ago to be able to understand and organize the, the internet at scale 
And the real value that we bring to the table is the capability of being able to understand what an organization looks like from the outside looking in. Uh, and subsequent to that, uh, we also have a very powerful threat hunting and uh, threat intelligence platform that uh, actually looks at uh, an adversary's organization and basically the infrastructure that they're using to, uh, to be able to leverage to do unwanted things across the Internet. What is the vision that um, RiskIQ had um, to help with all the security out there uh, in the Internet? Yeah, that's a, that's a very fun question. It's actually got a very uh, a deep history within uh, RiskIQ's ethos. So way back in the early days when, uh, when the company was starting, we kind of took a step back and we said, like, you know, well, what's really a mission statement that we can use to be able to kind of project a, a vision, something that we can always like kind of strive after? And um, we, we came down to a very simple statement saying, make the Internet a safer place. And we realized that that was a very lofty and very uh, a very multidimensional problem set to be able to solve for. And uh, as we started analyzing it, we said, well, what is the biggest problem that's actually keeping the Internet from being a safer place? The, the way that we looked at it was there just wasn't enough good guys in the game. Right. And so if you like when we looked at our like capabilities, as we started to come to market, as we started working with customers, the real question was, how do we take the complexities and uh, nuances of the Internet in all of its forms as it's been uh, manifested over time and actually make it more accessible so that uh, so that more people can get in the fight, essentially. And so if you look at the traditional models that uh, have been available over time, uh, you can either, number one, take very junior level analysts and have them do extremely senior, senior level Internet correlations by training them in terms of how the plumbing of the Internet works, with the artifacts of the Internet work, how they work in relationship to each other, et cetera. That's a lot of what we baked into our technology was the capability of taking those complexities and boiling it down and, uh, you know, placing it into products, placing it into um, other capabilities and other security investments that organizations have already made. The, uh, the second piece of that is uh, very senior level operators that are in uh, threat intelligence or in network defender type of scenarios, giving them the capability of doing very consistent work. You know, a lot of the challenges that, you know, needing to take, needing to look at the Internet requires, you know, usually multiple different sources of data, multiple different uh, capabilities, uh, and then like some system or capability to be able to bring all of this together. And what we aimed for was to be able to create a, a basically a centralized repository in a single pane of glass to be able to, uh, to, to operate at these Internet scale problems. Security as a whole has always been really interesting to me. Uh, because unlike any engineering discipline, it, it's not really a problem that you solve. It's a game that you play. And if you think about traditional engineering disciplines, even, you know, in the physical world, if you're going to build a bridge, it's like you have a train, you have like maybe a river that you want to be able to cross. You take some measurements, you get some, you know, concrete, some sticks and you put it together and you make a bridge. And if you can imagine, there's a, a, a steep learning curve at the beginning in terms of or a, a steep work curve at the beginning in terms of being able to actually design and architect a bridge. And then it kind of drops off. Right. You have to, you know, maintain the bridge. Maybe you have to like fix some potholes or put some different signs on it over the course of time. But if you think about that in the world of cybersecurity, it's you, there's actually an adversary on the other side of the equation. 
So for every motion that you make, there's almost like, you know, a counter motion that is made uh, to be able to circumvent. And those are one of the things that really kind of got me excited very much my early days of, uh, of working in cyber. But when you start working at that at an internet uh, scale, uh, it poses a whole different set of, uh, of challenges because the internet's constantly in flux. It's constantly moving. So <clears throat> the, uh, the, the ability to be able to uh, kind of take those, uh, those premises and be able to make them more accessible to more people more often has been a uh, has been a large charter of us, and it's it's been a lot of fun, like kind of going down this path. So one of the things that I keep uh, putting emphasis when presenting my news is the value uh, that cross service collaboration provide to help automate activities required to protect, detect, respond, and recover. So what are the integrations your team is doing as you get more incorporated into the stack? Yes, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, I think cybersecurity has largely been challenged with this since its inception. Um, if you look at entire industries, like you know, for example, the SOAR industry that popped up within cybersecurity, it was actually like designed to be able to arbitrage a deficiency that existed within security products and being able to have them work together. And if you think about this problem set inside the firewall, you have, you know, endpoints or maybe network devices, you have, uh, you know, different systems and operating systems and capabilities and so forth that are, uh, that are built up. And it's, it's often very difficult to be able to reconcile all of that. If you take that conversation and move it out to the internet, one of the advantages of the internet is the same internet for everybody, good guys, bad guys, partners, employees, they're all kind of operating around the, the same uh, first principles of how connectivity and exposure on the internet works. And so as we started to look at it from a macro perspective, there's really kind of three general sources of data that you're working with. You have internal data. So you can think of like syslog, barlog, different uh, logs that are coming off of various systems that you have internally. And then on the other side of the equation, you have this deep, dark, spooky web, whatever we're calling it this week. And then kind of in the middle of all of that is the internet. And that is what we primarily focused on is not only the ability to be able to collect and organize internet scale data, uh, but actually be able to unlock it inside of an organization. So if you can imagine that, uh, you know, the internet for many organizations has become an extension of their network. It's an extension of the data center, how uh, employees work, how uh, customers interact, et cetera. And the decision calculus that is actually required to be able to uh, effectively manage an internal network is largely predicated on being able to infuse or basically harness the knowledge of the internet at any particular point in time in order to make a lot of these decisions. So the integration paths that we worked on were, were largely based around being able to create one plus one equals three type of uh, scenarios. So for us, it was very, very important not just to uh, integrate into uh, or just throw data back and forth with a, uh, with a particular partner and put each other's logos on each other's websites, but actually peeling that onion back and saying, what's the problem that we're actually trying to solve? Um, I think one of our uh, most critical integrations that, uh, that, that we started, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, uh, but continue to like reinforce is like, for example, our integration to Defender or even Sentinel. 
If you look at Sentinel, you know, for example, you could have an incident that uh, that comes into your uh, into your sock, and then if any incident, any part of that incident has an intersection point or a nexus that actually exists on the internet, um, the playbooks in the background actually go out and not only decorate that incident with uh, internet data and the historical aspects and so forth, but also uh, brings in what we call observables, which means what's happening with this domain name, this IP address, this certificate, uh, et cetera, that's actually uh, placed inside of that incident. And if, in fact, it's currently being observed to, for example, being uh, relaying malware, in the background, the, the the playbook will actually promote from maybe a medium uh, flagged uh, incident into being, you know, maybe a high-level incident. And then when you think of the actual SOC analyst, whoever like actually opens that incident, there's usually one of two things that they traditionally end up doing. Number one, uh, they, they want to know as much information as they can get about that uh, particular incident, which that is what the purpose of the playbook is, is to be able to keep the analyst from having to alt-tab to another system or maybe even multiple systems or be able to cross-reference it with multiple systems where all of that information is really at their fingertips and really in their field of view when they're making a decision about triaging an incident or suppressing it or maybe creating an internal ticket. The second thing that normally comes off of a well-decorated incident is you might, instead of having a SOC analyst that's trying to triage it, you may have a threat hunter that wants to go investigate it further. Maybe they want to understand, am I a targeted chance or a targeted choice? Is this something that's rather prolific across the internet or is this a singular incident? And so the capability of being able to systematically go directly from that alert directly into uh, the depths of the internet research and kind of what the internet has to say about uh, that information or that particular incident um, becomes a, a very fluid uh, transition for uh, whoever's working. Hey, Jason, you said whether someone is a target of choice. Could you explain what you, and you had some other some other stuff a in there? Targeted well. chance or targeted choice? <laughs> yeah, can you um, just explain that a little bit? That, that sort of piqued my interest. Yeah, so the, you know, one thing that we found, and you see this uh, replicated with a whole like kind of classes of incidents that we've kind of uh, that, that we've seen across the internet. So a, a targeted chance is. Um, I'm going to create a piece of malware or I'm going to look for a particular vulnerability and I'm just going to mass exploit it across the Internet. I don't care like who you are in terms of industry vertical. Uh, I, I don't care in terms of uh, who you are in terms of sophistication. If you have this particular exposure and if I do have access to it, I will subsequently um, uh, you know, go ahead and compromise or at least interrogate that particular target for the purposes of being able to you know, understand if I have a second or third order event that I can place on top of it. A target of choice is the bad guy's not going to go away. They're going to go another way. For whatever reason, you either have PII that is of specific interest to them, or you have, you know, a political leaning as an organization that is uh, of specific distaste for a set of bad actors. And you can look at you know, even the bad actor cases of e-crime, uh, you could look at it in a nation state lens, you could look at it in a hacktivism lens, you could look at people that are just like basically just out to cause problems. And, you know, if we just take like one of those, for example, like e-crime, uh, it kind of goes back to that old uh, Willie Sutton uh, explanation when he got arrested and 
people were asking like, well, why, why are you always trying to break into banks? And he's like, because that's where the money is. So when you look at that paradigm of targeted chance versus targeted choice, um, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that like a bullet can kill you regardless. But you as an organization, understanding if that bullet's being fired from a sniper or if it's uh, just, uh, you know, a random uh, projectile that's thrown out from a drive by. Those are two like very different response characteristics that you probably would end up employing internally. So about a month ago, I was watching a webcast that the Sentinel team, uh, Regina Kapoor and Brandon Dixon uh, from your team, uh, were presenting as part of the uh, Microsoft security community. They were explaining how to ingest the threat intelligence data or or, all this information that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This has become really important because uh, uh, there have been like several executive office uh, mandates and and guidance are being put out there and a lot is talking about threat information. Can you talk a little bit about how do you come up with this threat information sharing? And I think uh, you have a Section 52 uh, team that is actually mystic team that is helping uh, sometimes uh, with the information that you're putting. Plus, you have your own analysts or, or researchers that are putting this information. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, you know, for, for Risk IQ, and this has pretty much been like, you know, since the beginning of us as an organization, we've been largely been uh, based around visibility in terms of being able to, you know, not necessarily uh, focus as much on who's doing something as much as where is it. So if you think about this in the context of, you know, I was just uh, going through a whole series of uh, vulnerabilities, one in particular with regards to OpenSSL yesterday. And it appears to be a a pretty significant uh, issue that will require a handful of patch or quite a bit of patching. But the the question is not necessarily whether or not that open SSL issue is uh, is bad. I think everybody can uh, look at the the information about the exploit itself and say that it's probably not good at, at a minimum. But the real question is, where is that within my environment? Where is that across my attack surface? In terms of what I'm responsible for on the internet as an organization, um, do I have any of these libraries that are natively incorporated? Then you can take the kind of second tertiary conversations with that of saying like, I may have 10 or 100 or 1,000 critical vendors and I leverage uh, different parts of the digital footprint or the attack surfaces of these different vendors. So which one of those actually have this, uh, the, this SSL vulnerability put inside of it? So that visibility component and probably the easiest way to think about it uh, in the world of threat intelligence, there's really kind of two flavors of, uh, of threat intelligence that are out there. And I generally put them into the Doppler radar versus the meteorologist. And, you know, a meteorologist says like, you should bring an umbrella tomorrow. It's going to be bad, you know, or it's a, it, it might rain like in the afternoon where a Doppler radar actually says like over the course of like, you know, the next 24 hours, this is what the precipitation will be. This is uh, uh, the confidence that's associated with it. This is the empirical data that actually presents that. And that's a lot of what Risk IQ has or uh, what our focus is, is really the quality of Internet data and being able to surface that at the, at, at the point in time that it's actually needed in order to be able to, to, make a, uh, to make a decision. 
So when you when you think about like how that data actually comes into play, it really has to do with the core underpinnings of our system, because we control all of our collections infrastructure. We control the entire analysis layer. This isn't leverage based on partnerships and so forth. This is just raw telemetry of what the internet looks like. And you know, through a series of uh, uh, products as well as APIs, the way we go to market, et cetera, those are exposed then uh, then to customers. And so, when you when you think about the integrations that uh, are, I'm sorry, the, the the way that that visibility ends up working, it provides a very unique vantage point to Risk IQ as well as our customers. And if you look across our customer base, we have a number like in the tens, like the high tens of global cybersecurity organizations. And you'll notice like uh, they, they will write research papers and say, here's a bad guy. Here's why he's picking on you. Here's an example. Here's every place else on the internet that this exact thing is happening. That's normally us. And then normally they close out with uh, buying more of their products or configuring it differently for the purposes of being able to uh, maybe uh, uh, respond to a particular threat or an unwanted event. Well, that visibility, um, that capability of being able to take a singular uh, thread on a sweater, and if you will, pull and unravel it and be able to see it, is is something that is is not very common, uh, if at all, within the uh, within the cybersecurity industry. So when we have uh, within Risk IQ prior to the acquisition, it's just been bolstered quite a bit more with uh, the acquisition by Microsoft. We have a, a tier one threat intelligence team that is constantly looking for uh, bad actors, bad infrastructure, bad associations, etc., across the internet. And normally, the the original piece, uh, the original thread that's pulled, if you will, is actually directly related to uh, a specific observed event that occurred. And then once you find that piece of infrastructure, the capability of being able to expand the aperture and say, okay, this isn't just one of one. This is one of a hundred different things that are happening exactly like this across the internet. So that when you're making a decision of alerting, when you're making a decision about blocking, you're actually doing it with the confidence of what the internet as a whole looks like, not just what a singular event is. Does that make sense? It does. Actually, um, uh, this is something that uh, I've been talking recently, uh, especially about data quality, because there's uh, many vendors and many talks out there of how to increase the amount of threat intelligence that is shared. And sometimes I, I am concerned about the noise that it will be introduced if the people do not have the expertise of, to share quality data to the rest of the community and how uh, that data uh, can be used across uh, the, the security solutions. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a very good point, Gladys, because it, it, imagine that you received a piece of intelligence, or whether it could be sensitive source reporting, whether it could be from another system that you have inside of your environment, and or if, if a peer of yours in the industry comes to you and says, here's a bad IP. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, is it always bad and it's just continuing to be bad? Is it bad? Is it normally good and it's just bad right now? Is it from Russia and right now anything from Russia is bad? And then once you make that determination for today, what happens in an hour from now or a day or a week? What does the entropy of that actually end up looking like? 
And so, you know, because, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, because we own our own collections infrastructure, and this is a systems of systems, petabytes of petabytes type of problem set that we're, uh, that we're dealing with here. But because we own that entire collections infrastructure, we have the capability of being able to provide the providence of like what that IP address is in this example, uh, the reputation of what that IP address is, that reputation over time, the history of it, like what else was it related to? And what that does is it surfaces all of that content in context. And when that context is actually directly related to a particular issue that you are uh, attempting to triage right now, that becomes invaluable. Uh, If you think about it generally, just look at the amount of news and research and uh, source reporting that is happening on literally a daily basis now uh, across cybersecurity. And a lot of them are interesting. A lot of them, uh, uh, a lot of the information that comes off is actually, you know, quite battle tested and relevant and so forth. But the real question that you have is, so what? What does this mean to me? You know, that's that's good that these bad guys are using this infrastructure to attack these kind of targets. I generally align to that target, but am I specifically aligned? And the the ability to be able to tease that out in real time, the ability to be able to uh, dynamically understand as your priorities change, as your security programs change, uh, as threat adversaries change, you know, how that constantly relates to you. When I was uh, doing a little bit of research on RiskIQ, I noticed that there's actually a RiskIQ connector for the Power Platform and for Logic Apps. Yes. Can you explain kind of where, where would somebody use you know, that connector? Well, generally, uh, the primary benefit of having these connectors is to being able to uh, to to be able to ingest uh, the specific components related to the internet that has to do with your particular business application. So, uh, prior to the uh, to the acquisition, we were primarily, and we still are, very very heavily focused on the threat intelligence world and uh, and how to be able to provide internet scale data sets to provide a uh, uh, decision advantage. But if you think about it, the, the extensibility that, uh, that goes beyond threat intelligence for internet scale data is, is almost infinite. Um, if you imagine like uh, yourself as a CIO versus a CISO, you may have a, a, a simple question of what technologies that you're leveraging. Um, you may have like very firm understanding of the assets that you have within your organization, whether it's um, you know desktops or workstations or servers or licenses, bandwidth, rack space, et cetera. But what do you have in terms of a digital asset management system? Because if you think about the fundamental components of digital assets, they're, they're different than what exists inside the firewall. Uh, in a very simple example, you could have one singular IP address that maybe has a uh, hundred websites behind it, or you could have one IP or a hundred IP addresses that all go back to a singular website. And then once you go to a singular website, well, what CDNs are actually being used to uh, to transmit traffic uh, basically across the internet to uh, uh, to your organization? You could look at it in terms of CMSs or maybe third-party components or widgets or uh, um, uh, different functionality that's pulled in from across the internet at, uh, at runtime. And, and if you look at you know, the charter of like CIOs, I mean, effectively, they get paid to do one very simple but 
very uh, far-reaching thing, and that's to take the blinky lights in the data center and tie it to earnings per share. And the reality is that those blinky lights in the data center are now becoming elements of the web or partially on the web or partially in the cloud and partially on the web or partially in your data center as well. So the, the way that that problem needs to be solved has changed, right? And so as a result of changing that, um, the capability of being able to take this level of data and being able to infuse it into other IT operations um, you know, provides a very, very like interesting future, I think, for, uh, for Microsoft and RiskIQ. Yeah, I think you know, based on what you just said, that it sounds like, you know, I could consume one of these APIs, call out to RiskIQ, and I could use the response that you give me. Let's, let's just take a real simple example. Let's say someone connects to my Logic app from some IP address. I could call the RiskIQ stuff and give me all the information that I, I need to know about that IP address. So I could take the information about that IP address and then start to make decisions about whether I'm going to accept that connection, for example. Correct. And I think in your example there of making a decision, uh, the capability of being able to do that on a case-by-case or a singular, like, you know, does this work type of uh, instance, but as well as being able to automate it. Because, you know, having the power of the internet basically harnessed into, you know, a singular collective data set with all the associated uh, relationships packed onto it, there may be ways that that decision ends up maturing over time as you end up adding more or different types of data into the pipelines to be able to make that decision. So again, when I was looking at stuff about RiskIQ, I noticed that RiskIQ uh, sort of occupies a niche within the environment called enterprise attack surface management. It's interesting that I see the term attack surface in there because I've used uh, attack surface, the term attack surface for a long time, as, as has the industry, to sort of understand how exposed, for example, an operating system is. Like if I have an operating system and it's got, I don't know, let's, let's make up a number, 20 open ports and seven of those ports are open to the internet, and of those seven, one is unauthenticated, then you know that particular port has a very high attack surface because it's basically it's accessible to anybody on the internet. And one thing that we focused on a lot back in the early days of, uh, of Windows, um, especially with uh, the delta between Windows XP Service Pack 2 and Windows Vista was reducing the, the operating system's attack surface. And in fact, a Microsoft attack surface analysis and attack surface reduction is a is a critical part of designing any system. It's a, it's a major part of the Microsoft security development lifecycle. So it was really kind of interesting when I saw this term, you know, enterprise attack surface management. Could you just like give us like the elevator pitch of what enterprise attack surface management actually is? The, the way to think about this is that the same elements that you described with regards to uh, the attack surface of a particular desktop that had uh, maybe ports and services that were open to the internet, that is now at a, uh, at a completely different level when you start talking about enterprise attack surface management from, a, uh, from an industrial strength, uh, kind of global organizational vantage point. And there's two primary differences that are are nuanced, even though the underlying premise is still the same. Um, First of all, the underlying premise being you can't protect what you don't know. So if you don't know something exists, if you don't know that a business unit went out and registered a website on uh, a a service provider and maybe put it up on a a different cloud hosted provider and is offering some kind of services to, uh, to customers, if something goes sideways with that, if, if something gets uh, gets hacked with in relationship to that, how do you even know where to start to respond? Um, the uh, the the way that this is manifested on the um, 
on, on the corporate side and like basically on the enterprise or organizational sides, whether you're looking in governments or whether you're looking in, uh, you know, a specific uh, commercial entity is that everybody came on the Internet a little bit differently. Uh, some people started off day one with, you know, a, uh, a web server and a firewall and got going from there. Some people immediately went to a co-location facility. Some people started to outsource it to third parties to be able to manage all aspects of it. And over the course of time, organizations have started to adopt and, you know, move from the inside to the outside or moving within their data center to cloud providers. Some have uh, elected to go from co-location facilities into the cloud or maybe back into a data center. And the primary difference that, uh, that starts to surface here is that if you look at the whole reason that you have a website to begin with, it's actually not for the host organization. It's to be able to service your customers. So the question becomes, on one side, how do I protect myself? Because that's important. I don't want somebody to, uh, uh, to take PII or PCI uh, type data out of my environment. But how like, uh, of your security stack and the whole reason that you have uh, you know, a website to begin with is for your customers. How do I know my customers aren't getting hacked? If you look at some uh, some rather large incidents that have happened over the past several years, it's actually not an instance of the host company being attacked. It's the host company's website providing a mechanism for their customers to be attacked. So a simple example of this is you may have some widget, maybe a third-party shopping cart application that you have on your website. And that shopping cart application is actually being hosted somewhere else on the internet. It's not within any of your positive control points. And an adversary could try to hack your particular organization and maybe take credit cards out of your organization, or they could could hack that third party. And they could hack that third party so that any time that somebody went to your website and put in their name and their credit card number and their CVV and expiration date, et cetera, that when they hit that submit button, not only does it go internally to your organization to process, but it also goes to an adversary's uh, website where they can house and subsequently end up using that, uh, that credit card information in this example uh, in a fraudulent manner. And if you look at how attack surface management has grown up over the past you know, 10 years or so, we didn't really even know what to call it when we first saw it, right? It's like we, we knew we had this capability. We knew that it was something that customers wanted. We knew that providing an attack surface uh, to a customer provided uh, ways to be able to augment or subsequently enhance anything from uh, their bug bounty programs, from their vulnerability management programs, AppSec, pen testing, et cetera. But there also was this element of being able to provide, you know, a, a confidence that their customers, in fact, weren't taking advantage by utilizing their web services. And as that uh, situation, as that scenario started to uh, to grow over the course of time, it kind of went from a fringe, like if I have time, yes, we'll do attack surface management for, you know, our digital enterprise for uh, the the digital estate that we've created and being able to have visibility to this the same way that users do, the same way that adversaries do, the same way that partners and customers, et cetera, um, have of my environment, and then being able to crystallize that. And as, uh, as we noticed probably about four or five years ago, this started to catch a lot of traction, for example, with analyst firms. It started to uh, become 
more top of mind topics that, uh, that, that we've seen uh, covered in a number of different uh, forums uh, like conferences and webinars, et cetera. And the ability for this to you know, become a foundational component the ability for attack surface management to become a foundational component of any contemporary enterprise security program has kind of gone from like the early adopters into, I would say, more of a critical mass of, uh, of organizations. And these are not just very large multinational global organizations, though they were probably more in the early adopter camp. But, you know, think of organizations that have disproportionately smaller security teams to disproportionately large digital presences that they have. You see this a lot of time in uh, multinational or even domestically conglomerates where they're, they're more of a combination of a bunch of uh, smaller brands and organizations that roll up under a, uh, under a centralized organization from an accounting perspective. So how can somebody uh, see how this look like? Uh, do you have a demos, uh, some videos? Uh? Yeah, we, so, so the, the very good question, Gladys. It actually takes us right back to the beginning of the conversation. When Risk IQ said that, uh, you know, we wanted to make the internet a safer place. And we, we came to the realization that the biggest challenge that we had to make in the internet a safer place was there wasn't enough good guys in the game. And then bringing the capability of complex internet investigations and visibility and so forth down to uh, a more consumable level that allowed anybody to interact with that, uh, that led us down the path of actually creating an entire freemium model. So uh, today you can go to community.riskiq.com. Uh, you can set up a free account. Everything that we've been talking about here today can be unlocked within that, uh, that account itself. Um, we have a little over 110, 120,000 different analysts across about 15,000 organizations today that are using it. Uh, it is, uh, but arguably, uh, one of the most prolific uh, freemium SaaS-based offerings that, uh, that that exist on the internet. And it also has a uh, a, a number of uh, additional value adds that we look at in terms of being able to. Um, provide uh, um, uh, provide visibility and capabilities to organizations. Uh, we have threat hunter workshops, uh, for example. We do them uh, about once a month. We usually get uh, hundreds and hundreds of people from across the globe on uh, uh, on these uh, threat hunter workshops. And what we do is we actually take things that are in the news. We take technologies that customers or the market that are using. We take concepts that are uh, very, uh, very basic to very complex. And we actually show how within the product itself, uh, you can solve for a lot of these problems. So, so yeah, if you're looking for, you know, a way to be able to get in the game right now, you can, uh, you can go set up an account um, and uh, you can reach out to your Microsoft contact and we can give you extended access and more visibility and take uh, a lot of uh, some of the limitations that we have uh, within the product and the freemium side and actually uh, provide a full enterprise version. And then I would also offer if you wanted to either sign up and look at some of our historical threat hunting workshops that we've done, uh, where we've uh, we've taken, you know, very uh, robust infrastructure that has been set up by bad guys and uh, systematically decompose it. Um, you can uh, you can sign up for those, or you can uh, sign up for new uh, um, threat hunting workshops that we have coming up in the future. 
Yeah, I, I originally when I started uh, learning about Risk IQ, I um, signed up for uh, some of those workshops. I think it's every other Thursday uh, for mm-hmm. a couple of hours, and uh, they were awesome. Uh, it, it just got me started, so I really recommend it. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I mean, what has traditionally been you know, types of access and types of visibility that have been relegated to a very small niche of cybersecurity professionals uh, that largely learned how to do it over years and years of, uh, uh, of research and being practitioners, et cetera. Being able to bring that down to be able to have, you know, individuals. I mean, we've got programs that we've done for high school kids uh, where we've taken, you know, very simple articles that show up in mainstream news that have either a singular domain name or a singular IP address in them and actually expand all of that and be able to say, this is the, this is what this infrastructure looks like on the internet right now. And you know, the, this is the story behind everything that you just read in that news article. This has been really great. Um, I've learned a, learned a ton. I mean, kind of understood a little bit about what, what Risk IQ is, uh, but certainly learned one, one heck of a lot more. So Jason, uh, one thing we like to ask our guests is if you had one thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? If I could leave uh, any kind of kind of parting thoughts with anybody, it would be around not needing to wait until uh, you know some additional technology comes along or some future state you know occurs. The, the capabilities are there now, and the entry point is far easier than uh, than, than it's ever been in the past. In closing, I'd, I'd really like to thank you for the uh, for the time here today, and this is a topic that's that's very exciting to me and very. Uh, I'm very passionate about, and uh, it's very personal to me. So, uh, anything I could do to uh, to help, uh, you know, please feel free to uh, to reach out. And I'm sure, uh, you know, maybe we can do this again sometime. So, again, thanks so much for joining us this week, Jason. I know Gladys and I really appreciate you taking the time. And to our listeners out there, thank you also for listening. Uh, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website azsecuritypodcast.net If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure Senecause and other resources Background website is from ccmixture.podcast.net and licensed under the Creative Commons If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure Senecause Background music is from ccmixture.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license